Welcome to the Learners Exchange, Journey to the Bible. I'm Roger, uh, along with Patrick. I teach this on Sundays. We've got some guests with us. I'll let them briefly introduce themselves, if you don't mind. Well, I'm Roger's favorite aunt. Favorite aunt. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm his favorite uncle, Robert. And, <laughs> and friends I'm, from college. I'm Will Somerville, my husband, Jay. Um, we're, we're friends of Roger's aunt. Yes, yes, y'all are cousins. Great. And they've come for a little holiday at Polly's Island. Isn't the weather great? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for if you, a lot of you have been around, but in case we have any new faces today, we're, ju- we're just, it's a whistle-stop tour through every book of the Bible. Uh, Sometimes we spend two or three weeks on a, on a particular book, if it's a longer book like Genesis, but today we're in a very short book, but it's a real gem. It's called Ruth in the Old Testament. Raise your hand if you've ever read Ruth. Okay, so the story is somewhat known. Uh, you may not have ever heard a sermon series on Ruth, uh, and maybe you will one day, but for now we're just going to do a brief introduction uh, to Ruth. This is a... Uh, hey, Cindy. This is a... Um, Ruth is a story. It's a story that is tragic and redemptive at the same time. Uh, it's a story about the family of a guy called Elimelech and his wife Naomi. And they had two sons. One was called Maulon and the other one's called Chilion. Not names you hear very much these days anymore. And those two sons took for themselves two wives. One of the wives was called Orpha and the other is called Ruth. Uh, the story is tragic because by the time you get to Verse 5 of chapter 1, half the family's dead. Uh, Elimelech dies and his two sons die. But the story is redemptive because by the time it ends, Ruth and by association Naomi, her mother-in-law, have seen immense restoration at God's hand. Now in the context of the Hebrew scriptures, can you all see the screen okay, uh, okay there? just want to locate Ruth in the context of the, of the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, real quick. In the context of the Old Testament canon, Ruth is in a group of five texts that are known as the Megillot. Uh, and in English, that Megillot means the scrolls or the writings. So the writings, part of the Old Testament, contains five books. One of those books, of course, is Ruth. Morning, Chris. Uh, the others are the Song of Songs. Esther, Ecclesiastes, and Lamentations. Those are the five writings. That's how they're grouped in the Old Testament, especially in the Hebrew form of the Old Testament, the Jewish form. And each of those five texts, this is kind of interesting, was associated with a festival in the context of the Jewish liturgical calendar, and still is. In the case of Ruth, uh, this little book is associated with the Feast of Weeks, which we talked about few weeks ago when we went through Leviticus. Um, The Feast of Weeks has several different associations, several different points of significance. One of them is an association with the harvest, the harvest time. Um, Ruth is a book that has the image of harvesting throughout it. She starts off harvesting in Boaz's fields and then continues to harvest barley and then wheat. Um, And the Feast of Weeks follows the Passover in the Jewish year. The Feast of Weeks, however, is also associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which is something that we looked at when we went through the book of Exodus, uh, when God gives his law in the form of the Ten Commandments. Uh, The law gave expression to what it meant, 
what it means to be a true follower of God, or in the context of the Old Testament, what it meant to be a true Israelite, a true worshiper of God, someone who walked in the way of God's law. Uh, So why is Ruth associated with the Feast of Weeks, which is associated with the giving of the law? That's a question you might be wondering. Uh, And the answer is that Ruth is presented as the model proselyte to Judaism. Ruth was not Jewish. She was a Moabitess. So she was not uh, of the house and lineage of Jacob, descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She came in from a foreign group of people, but she is presented in this book as the model Israelite, the model Gentile convert uh, to Judaism. She is presented as a follower of Torah, the way of God. She displays a trait. In Hebrew, it's known as hesed. It means loyal love. That is one of the defining traits of the God, of God as we meet him in the Old Testament, hesed. And Ruth is displayed as someone, presented as someone who models and is an exemplar of this trait. And so that's partly why Ruth is read in the Jewish liturgical calendar during the Feast of Weeks when the Jews remember the giving of God's law, and Ruth offers a picture of someone who followed that law very well. Does that make sense? In our English Bibles, Ruth appears between the book of Judges, which is one of the X-rated books of the Old Testament. Do not read unless you're 18 or over 21. And Samuel, First and Second Samuel, uh, because Ruth, this story occurred during the time of the judges. This is before the Israelites had a king. First king was called Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and so on. But before they had kings, they had judges. Samuel was one of the judges, someone who had authority, who made judicial decisions, but they weren't quite a king. And it was a very tumultuous, uh, really dangerous period in Israelite history. And this is when the narrative of Ruth takes place. And so that's why it's located in the English Old Testament between Judges and Samuel. Uh, Inasmuch as Ruth ends up being the great-grandmother of King David, it makes sense as well that Ruth comes before Samuel and kings. And that's very significant. We'll come back to the fact that Ruth ends up being the great-grandmother of King David. The book of Ruth has four chapters. The outer two chapters, chapters 1 and chapters 4, correspond in that they tell, chapter 1 tells of leaving home, of death and bereavement, that's chapter 1, and then chapter 4 tells of returning home and of birth and new life and redemption. So there's a sort of correspondence between chapter 1 and chapter 4, the minor motif, the major motif. And then the two inner chapters, chapters 2 and 3, also correspond. And what they chronicle is the development of the relationship between Ruth and Boaz, who would eventually become her second husband. And so in this sense, the book of Ruth, like many books in the Old Testament and many parts of books in the Old Testament, has what's called a chiastic structure. Uh, And that tells us that the people who, the human authors of these books, were sophisticated literary editors. They were organized in the way that they presented things. This isn't a haphazard, ramshackle text. It actually has a deep organization and coherence to it. Uh, The pattern is kind of A-B-B-A, if you want to think of it in those terms. 
Let's go look at the story, the narrative real quick. And what I want to do for the next uh, minutes we have together is to briefly retrace the narrative and then end by reflecting on the significance of this story. What is, this, what is the big purpose of this story? Why is Ruth in the Bible? What is it teaching? What does it teach us today? Uh, so the narrative. Chapter 1, Elimelech and his family leave their home in Israel. So you can see the kingdom of Israel, and this is also the kingdom of Judah, so Israelite people living in both of these parts, the blue and the pink. Jerusalem's there. And then this is the kingdom of Moab, which doesn't exist anymore. It's, uh, I guess this would be modern-day Jordan. Uh, and that's the, um, the Dead Sea. Uh, Bethlehem would be kind of somewhere right over here. I tried to find a map with, with Bethlehem. And that's where they were living. They were living in Bethlehem, the city of David. Uh, and they have to leave Bethlehem because there's a famine. There's a shortage of food. And there's a certain irony there because the name Bethlehem actually means city of bread. But there's no bread in Bethlehem at this moment. So they venture over to neighboring Moab because apparently the crops are coming in. There in Moab, there was supposed to be greater fertility in the land in Moab. But in fact, Moab does not prove, for this family at least, to be a place of fertility and of life. It proves to be the exact opposite. It becomes a place of death. Limelech and his two sons die, and so the men of this family are no more. And you have three men and three women, and now there are just three women by the time you get to verse 5 of chapter 1. Three widows. And being a widow in this time, and some of you probably have some sense of this, was to be in a very uh, precarious, vulnerable position. It was a very undesirable status um, without a source of, of livelihood and protection and so forth in a world that was often aggressive and hostile and dangerous. And so we've got these widows here. And widows, by the way, are, in the context of the Old Testament, included in the quartet, the four, the quartet, the four most vulnerable groups of people. And those groups, this is listed out in Deuteronomy 14 and 24, those groups are orphans, aliens, not extraterrestrials, of course. <laughs> The type of alien that my wife is officially considered in the eyes of the U.S. government right now. <laughs> that kind of alien. Uh, the poor and widows, a quartet of four vulnerable people. So they are, they, these three women fit into that category. Now, as a rule, widows would be dependent upon their husband's family for care and provision. Uh, and that provision sometimes came in the form of what we call Leverite customs. Anyone ever heard that word, the Leverite customs? Uh, in the Leverite tradition, and this is kind of explicit in certain parts of the Old Testament, if a, if a woman's husband died and the husband's brother was eligible to marry, he would marry the woman and continue his brother's name. That's part of the Leverite tradition. Seems kind of odd to us today. Um, we no longer really have that tradition. Um, if we did, you'd probably have to go to a psychotherapist. <laughs> Get sorted out. But anyway, it was a way of ensuring that the husband's name and property and so forth remained intact and was transmitted to another generation. Um, so, uh, you know, so that, that tradition is kind of in the background of Ruth. Uh, now, in this case, Orpha and Ruth would have been, they would have been dependent on Naomi. Their husbands have died, but uh, the situation is doubly awful because Naomi's husband has also died. And so the whole family has been tragically reduced. Naomi's a widow, as are her daughters-in-law. And as the story continues, Naomi hears that, once again, there is bread in Bethlehem, the city of bread. So everyone's, her husband's died, her sons have died. She thinks, I'm going to pack up and go back home. And uh, as she's packing, she actually tells her two daughters-in-law, don't come with me. 
just stay here. She's evidently a little bit fearful for them uh, that they go with her to Bethlehem. This is clear in chapter 1, verse 8. And why is she fearful? Because Naomi knows that life and well-being in this ancient Near Eastern context is very much bound up with family and your family system. Uh, And her daughters-in-law would be uh, returning to Bethlehem where they don't really have any strong family ties because their husbands are dead. So it might, in this awful situation, be better for them to go back to their birth families there in Moab or simply to stay in Moab with their birth families. And Orpha, uh, the daughter of one of Naomi's sons, she takes up the offer. She says, okay. Our relations are dissolved. I'm going to stay here. And to be honest, you could make a case that that was probably the wise and safer thing to do in context, but it's not what Ruth does. Ruth refuses, and in refusing, she says uh, something astounding. Let me just put these words on the screen. Sorry, that was the the grief image. That's what happens sometimes. I forget to click my slides. (laughs) She says, no, I'm not going to go. And she says, don't urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people are going to be my people, and your God is going to be my God. Chapter 1, verse 16. These words are a oral, verbal expression of that trait I mentioned at the beginning, hesed, loyal love. So Ruth feels a deep bond with Naomi, even though... The man who was the source of that bond is now gone. Ruth still feels some sort of bond to care for her mother-in-law and to let her mother-in-law care for her. And so she, she makes this profession of commitment and she goes with Naomi. And that was not in historical context an insignificant thing to do. Um, this would have amounted to a substantial unsettling or reconfiguring of Ruth's identity, who she was as a person, who she understood herself to be, where she understood herself to belong. And so as chapter 1 ends, we see Naomi and Ruth returning to Israel, uh, but their arrival is hardly a triumphal entry. Naomi is quite negative and bitter. That's very clear if you read through chapter 1. In modern parlance, it's probably safe to say that she is clinically depressed, and I think we can all understand why. Uh, You actually see this if you kind of trace through her progressive statements in chapter 1, which is a really interesting little exercise to do exegetically. In verses 8 and 9, Naomi speaks about God in conventionally pious terms. She says uh, to her daughters-in-law, may the Lord deal kindly with you and may he grant you security. You know, so that's the kind of the right, proper, religious, pious thing to say. But in verse 13, the tone shifts a little bit. Naomi says something that's a little bit more candid. She says, the hand of God has turned against me. So this God that she's asked them to bless and provide security for, a moment later she says, has turned against me. He's not really, doesn't seem to be a source of blessing, at least in her experience right then. By verse 15, that bitterness is in full force. Uh, She actually suggests to Ruth and Orpah that they'd be better off in Moab and that they'd be better off under the care of the Moabite gods, which is quite a shocking thing to say for an Israelite woman. You know, so it's gone from God bless you, our God bless you, and keep you to actually don't bother with our God because I'm not sure how reliable he is. That's where she is. Remember now, this is words from someone who's probably clinically depressed. Um, and then it culminates with Naomi giving herself a new name, Mara. And that word means, God has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Don't name your children that. <laughs> That is a cry for help. 
That's how you can interpret that. That's a cry for help. This is a crisis of faith mixed in with clinical depression. And she is actually in this renaming of herself, pleading with God to act. And God does act. And we see that in what comes in the next few chapters. So let's turn now to those two central chapters, chapters 2 and 3. Uh, Naomi and Ruth resettle. There's this guy called Boaz who comes onto the scene. If you have a son, that's a great name to give him, Boaz. Uh, Boaz is evidently kinfolk to Naomi. He's also a bit older, it seems, and somewhat well-established in the community. He's got some land. He's a man of means and provision. Um, And Ruth encounters Boaz. At one level, it's kind of presented as happenstance. She's out sort of gleaning in the field. The poor were allowed to do this. You know, you pick the wheat and parts of it fall off. And the Old Testament teaches elsewhere that you don't get the vacuum out and suck all the wheat up. You leave it there for the poor so that they can come along after and make some bread. And so that's what Ruth's doing. She's gleaning, and she kind of bumps into Boaz because she's there in his field. And it's presented as happenstance, but it's not from another perspective. Um, And she makes a favorable impression on Boaz. She asks permission to glean, chapter 2, verse 7. You didn't always, people didn't always do that. You didn't necessarily have to do it, but she does it. Uh, She shows herself to be hardworking, chapter 2, verse 8. And uh, chapter 3, verse 11, this created an impression in Boaz, along with other things, presumably that he witnessed in Ruth, so that he calls her a woman of character. Sometimes it's translated in English as a worthy woman. And that hearkens to Proverbs chapter 31. We have a description of a godly woman or a woman of character. And so what we see, the language is the same there in Hebrew. So Ruth is being introduced and interpreted as someone who embodies Proverbs 31, woman, industrious, hardworking, responsible, godly. In response to all this, Boaz, who clearly has a good head on his shoulders, responds favorably. Um, And he says something to Ruth that's a little bit interesting. He says, uh, you know, you need to be careful out here gleaning. He recognizes she's a foreigner, she's not an Israelite, she's a Moabitess, there are young guys around and people around, and so it can be a little bit dangerous, you know, uh, just like it can be dangerous for certain sorts, of, certain sorts of aliens in the U.S., you know, or in any country. It's not your, yeah, we're not in that category, thank goodness. Um, but we, we know that's true, you know, people who come up from Honduras and end up here are very easily exploitable, for example. Um, and so he says, you know, I want you to be uh, careful, and he said, I want you to stay in my fields, and I want you to keep close to the women. Keep close to the women. He evidently had some women on his work crews, and there were some young men as well. Uh, Boaz has uh, seen Ruth's character. He's seen that she's a person who has hesed, loyal love. That's a very admirable trait. Um, he praises that in chapter 2, verse 11. And it's important to know uh, that his words of praise, the words that are used here when he praises Ruth, they actually, these are words we've seen before in the Old Testament. They are words that echo some of the words about Abraham back in the book of Genesis. He says, Ruth, you left your mother and your father and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. That's exactly what Abraham did when he answered God's call. He left Ur of the Chaldeans and ventured out because God called him to, even though God didn't tell him at that point where he was going. So that's a powerful linkage. Ruth is being compared to the greatest patriarch of the Israelite nation, Abraham the founding patriarch. Uh, And in all of this, in looking after Ruth, Boaz shows himself to be a a man of good character, a godly man, a worthy man. Uh, He is, in tending to her needs, actually obeying and fulfilling God's law. 
Um, it's not a random thing he's doing here. In Deuteronomy 24, you read about some aspects of God's law that talk about caring for aliens or immigrants in your midst, and that's what he's doing. Uh, not every Israelite did that. Uh, not all Americans obey the law. Not all Israelites obeyed God's law, but Boaz did. He was a godly and law-abiding man. And in doing this, he's kind of beginning to bring Ruth in. That's what's happening here. And this is what commentators say is, should be recognized as the first step of Ruth becoming a member of the Israelite community. She stopped ceasing to be a Moabite and starting to be an Israelite. Not ethnically, not racially, if that was a meaningful term back then, but in terms of her identity. And at the center of that, of course, is religion. This is exactly what Naomi, or so we might surmise, wants to happen. Uh, Because in chapter 2, verse 20, she introduces Boaz in a slightly new light. She says that Boaz, he's not just a kinsman, he's actually a goel, a kinsman redeemer. That's how we translate that Hebrew word. Uh, And it literally means sort of next of kin or really close kin. Now in Israelite custom, the kinsman redeemer was someone who would marry the widow of a deceased brother, for example, back to that Leverite tradition we talked about. Uh, in order to take up the land that belonged to his brother and to ensure that his brother's name and progeny would continue. Uh, that was, so the, the kinsman redeemer is the one who actually fulfilled that Leverite customer tradition. Um, Naomi also seems to see something subtle but significant in Boaz's instruction for Ruth to keep close to the young women, chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, Ruth may have missed this. She may have thought, oh, well, he didn't want me to be a you know, it could be dangerous with the young men. And perhaps there were some dangers just for a single woman who's not an Israelite wandering around fields and so forth. Uh, But maybe it wasn't just Ruth's safety that was his concern. Uh, Maybe he didn't want some of those young men getting acquainted with Ruth and proposing to her because maybe he thought, I could marry her. We don't know, but there is some ambiguity and the text invites curiosity about this. Naomi discerns this in Boaz and, and because based, this, is, this is why we think Naomi's kind of reading between the lines here, because she recommends what can only be called a rather bold course of action, which unfolds in chapter 3. These are the instructions she gives to Ruth. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. <coughs> My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it might be well for you? And is Boaz not our relative, not our Goel, our kinsman redeemer? Rest means Security provision, well-being. So she's, she's not saying maybe Boaz could give us a cottage on his property to use to sleep in. That's not what she's saying. She's saying maybe he could offer us something more. She's thinking in terms of the kinsman redeemer and their well-being. And it makes sense. She's a widow with a widowed daughter-in-law living in the ancient Near East. This is a visual rendition of the scene that unfolds in chapter 3. And we'll talk about this very interesting scene. Uh, So in chapter 3 there, verses 3 through 11, Ruth implements the plan that Naomi came up with. She cleans up herself. She puts on some Chanel number (laughs) 9, pearls, all that. Um, And that is very significant. What she's doing is saying, I'm no longer a grieving widow. I'm back on the market. (laughs) That's kind of what she's doing there. I'm available for remarriage. 
Uh, so she is dressing up to go uh, have this encounter with Boaz. And she goes to where Boaz was eating. He finishes his meal. He retires. And then she goes and she lies down by his feet. And this, this incident has been variously interpreted. I've looked at a variety of interpretations. Some of them are quite ridiculous, highly implausible. I think what's really going on here is this is a symbolic offering of herself for marriage to Boaz. Um, and it's a high-stakes game because she didn't know what Boaz was going to say. It is uh, audacious, uh, you might say. And the key to understanding the significance of this gesture of lying down at his feet is to look at uh, how Ruth, number one, to look at how she identifies herself to Boaz when he wakes up in chapter 3, verse 8, and sees her at his feet. She refers to herself in this conversation not as his servant, but as his handmaid. Ama is the Hebrew word there. Now, this can be a little bit tricky to get because often in English the word servant is used here as well as in earlier parts of Ruth. But the Hebrew word is not the same. Uh, the word servant is used earlier in chapter 2.13. Um, and it's written in English as servant. And then here in chapter 3, you see the word servant in English again, but it's not the same word in Hebrew. Um, in 3.9, the word that's used in this discussion the word ama, translated as servant, and more accurately as handmaid, has a closer semi-romantic connotation. Uh, it was sometimes used actually to refer to a concubine. So this is someone who does more than sweep the house and cook. So it's a closer semi-romantic. Ruth is not saying she wants to be his concubine, but the word she uses is closer than the other word for servant that's used in this story. Uh, and then there's something else significant. She asked Boaz to spread the corner of his garment, his tunic, uh, this, uh, over her. Now, a lot of commentators have said, oh, is there something really untoward happening here? You know, what's this all about? Uh, actually, I don't think there's anything untoward. The word translated as garment in Hebrew is kanap, and that also can mean wings. And that is the same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 12, when Boaz prays that Ruth might find refuge under the wings of God. The same word. In response to this audacious uh, course of action, Boaz actually uh, he shows himself to be quite receptive, which sort of confirms what I said earlier about why he might have asked Ruth to spend time with the young ladies and not the young men. He's older, so perhaps he didn't want to directly propose a marriage arrangement with Ruth because he was older, but now that Ruth has said that she is happy to marry him. He is receptive, enthusiastic. However, he's also a man of honor, and he says, you know what? I am a kinsman redeemer, but there's one person who's closer to me, and according to the Leverite tradition, that person has the prerogative to play the role of kinsman redeemer before I do. So let me go talk to this guy and see if he wants to be your Goel, your kinsman redeemer, and you know, restore the name of your deceased husband and Naomi's husband. Uh, Boaz goes and has this conversation. It happens at the city gates, which is apparently where these conversations happen. Um, I don't know where they happen these days, but not that public, I, ex I expect. They happen down at um, the parlor coffee shop. <laughs> and um, the other guy declines uh, the offer. He says, now I'm going to pass. He's interested in the land, but he's not interested in Ruth. 
He thinks the land is valuable and Ruth's going to be a problem because she's a foreigner. She's a Moabitess. Well, Boaz already knows Ruth's character and he knows that she's worth way more than land. So he's happy to take her and the land and to bring, uh, to ensure that that family's inheritance from the Lord is continued. Uh, He is well aware that she is a woman of great character, a worthy woman in the spirit of Proverbs chapter 31. So the story then ends with a joyful marriage. Um, And it's worth noting here that this marriage actually goes beyond the traditional Leverite requirements. And I want to highlight this because there's an important lesson here too. The normal Leverite requirements required a man to marry his deceased brother's wife in that sort of scenario. Uh, Elimelech um, was not Boaz's brother. They're related, but not in that way. And so what we see by Boaz's willingness to step into this role is that here is a man who follows not just the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. And that's what true godliness is also about. In fact, sometimes following the spirit is more godly than just following the letter, if we learn anything from what Jesus says to all those Pharisees. And so they get married, and what happens is it's the culmination of Ruth's transferal from the Moabite community into the people of God, the Israelite community. Um, And this is signified profoundly by the prayer that is offered at the gate uh, there in the context of the negotiations leading up to the wedding. The prayer is this. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, Boaz, and that woman is Ruth, may he make this woman like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. That is a profound statement. Might not th- seem so when you read it on first glance. Anyone remember who Rachel and Leah were? Yes, some of Jacob's wives. And where did Jacob get his wives? Did he get them in Israel? So he went out of the country as well. Um, and he had to... They created Israel. That's right. So Israel is in a sense created by, um, you know, a descendant of Abraham, Abraham's grandson, but then two women who came not from the house of Abraham. There were no Israelites at that time. It was just the house of Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and then his 12 sons, and that grew out to become the house of Israel. So in a sense, the two wives of Jacob that built the house of Israel were not Israelites. They were foreigners. So Ruth, may you be blessed by God the same way that they were blessed to build up this house of Israel. And that is, you might say, a little bit of a polemic against uh, an unnecessarily stringent opposition to taking foreigners as wives. The Old Testament does warn about taking foreigners as wives because there's always the risk of spiritual dilution and pollution, but not always. And not always because of the fact that Israel itself came from two women who were not Israelites. And now in this story, the first great king of Israel comes from a woman who herself was a Moabitess. And so that's the blessing and the prayer. And God answers that prayer because Ruth would go on to become the great-grandmother of King David, which is where chapter 4 ends. Makes me think of some of Jesus' teaching this story, that the outsiders become insiders. And they go right to the center of the inside. And that's how the kingdom is built. And that's how Israel was built. So, let's think now about the larger purpose of Ruth. What's this story all about? What's the major theological or spiritual theme here? Um, As you might imagine, lots of people have read this book over the centuries, and they have written PhD theses arguing for different major themes and purposes. 
because you have to do that if you write a PhD thesis. They're not all right. Some of them are better than others. Um, some have seen Ruth as basically a story that licenses mixed marriages in the context of ancient Israel. You know, it works out really well this time, but there's also a high risk to mixed marriages, uh, and there's other stories in the Old Testament that demonstrate the problems of that. So that's a theme here, but I don't think that's the principal theme. Related to that, there are those who see Ruth as a story about the inclusion of Gentiles, non-Israelites, non-ethnically Israelite people, into the people of God, the Jews. Uh, you've got Ruth, a Moabitess, marrying an Israelite elder and becoming a great-grandmother to an Israelite king. And so the Gentiles are brought into the people of God. Again, that's something that's very present in this story. I think it's a significant aspect. I, I don't know if I would say it's the cardinal theme or purpose of the book of Ruth, theologically and spiritually. Some interpretations have seen Ruth as essentially an apologetic for King David's Moabite ancestry. Because you've got King David, who is the, the second king of Israel and toward the first great king of Israel. His, grand, his great-grandmother's a Moabitess, so you know, you know how people are when it comes to being king and queen. Everyone's obsessed with having pure blood and all this. You know, it's still that same way in England, you know. Um, that's why Meghan Markle is such a problem, I guess. Uh, you know, it's why poor Charles couldn't marry Camilla the first time, you know. So uh, the same sort of concerns here. You got this great king, but uh-oh, his, you know, let's, let's get out the genealogy. There's some problems here. Uh, and so they say, well, maybe they wrote the book of Ruth to show, yes, his great-grandmother was a Moabitess, but she was a model Israelite. She was better than most of us, let's be honest. You know, so that's the point of this book, to kind of legitimize the Davidic monarchy. Um, you could read it that way. I just don't think that's the principal theme either. Uh, another kind of major interpretation is that this is a case study for Hesed, for loyal love. And uh, that is certainly a prominent motif here in the book of Ruth. Um, you know, she was as good a Jew as, as you could find. Um, she showed Hesed and her relations with others with her husband, with her mother-in-law. Um, and so if you want to know what Hesed looks like, Ruth is an exemplar. Imitate her. I think that that's an important uh, lesson from this story, but I don't know if I would say it's the principal thing. So what I think actually is the most um, persuasive kind of take on the principal theme of Ruth is this, is that uh, God is always at work, and that the way God often works is through a concurrence between divine and human activity. Um, on the one hand, this is very much a human story. It's a story about human action. The characters in this story show a great deal of agency and intentionality. Naomi, Ruth. Um, but God is there. However, he's an unseen actor. Did you notice, if you read Ruth carefully, did you notice how little God is actually mentioned explicitly in the context of this story? Uh, the characters sometimes mention God a few times when they, like Naomi says, may our God provide you with security. You know, she speaks a word of blessing. Uh, but God himself as a character does not really feature in this story. In fact, the narrator of the story of Ruth never once mentions God doing anything directly in this story. And that speaks volumes. Because even though God is not explicitly mentioned, he's not an explicit agent mentioned by the narrator in the story, God's work, his good purposes, and providence are very much unfolding throughout every sentence, verse, page of the book of Ruth. Um, we see God's providence weaving together 
all the circumstances and choices of the characters in this story in a way that only God could. Naomi, her tragedy is to think that God is punishing her, but in fact this whole story is about God's mission, working behind the scenes to restore her and her family. And God is doing that through Ruth, through her boldness, and through her loyalty, her hesed, which brings healing ultimately to Naomi. But not without Boaz, this no-nonsense farmer who is full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses Boaz's integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And the story shows us how God blesses people when they organize their lives around faithfulness to him. How God blesses people when they organize their lives around faithfulness to him. So in sum, you might say the book of Ruth brilliantly explores the interplay between God's purposes and God's will with human decisions and human will, both of which have their integrity. And God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And this plays out at several levels, and the book of Ruth makes that clear. At one level, of course, it plays out in as much as there is redemption that comes to Naomi and her family. There's a reversal of all the awfulness that we read about there in chapter 1. place of death, there's new life. In place of famine and starvation, there's abundance and provision. Yet, but at a deeper and more profound level... This also plays out because the book of Ruth, as we've seen, ends by showing us how Boaz and Ruth together become the great-grandparents of King David. And that's significant, of course, because David is the first great king of Israel, but it's more significant because David, from David's lineage, comes the Lion of Judah. And that was not David. That's the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, we see these seemingly mundane events, tragic and difficult, but still mundane. They're part and parcel of life in this world, woven into God's grand redemptive purposes, not just for Naomi, not just for the little nation of Israel, but for the entire planet, for the salvation of all people. Because it's from Ruth and Boaz that comes David, and it's from David, if you read the genealogies, that comes Jesus the Messiah. And so the book of Ruth, I think, invites you and me in our lives as we think about what's going on with us and in the church to be aware of the ways that God can and is at work in the ordinary mundane details of life as we know it to bring about great redemption. It was true then, and it remains very true now. And that's the book of Ruth. So we've got a... Oh, yeah, there's, yeah. Um, we've got a few minutes for any questions you may have. Um, say again. Yes, ma'am, please share. Yes, that's another, that's another analogous story. Absolutely. brought that up because if you read through Ruth and if you read through the Joseph story in Genesis I think you will feel and be aware of the parallels. It's another illustration 
of the way that God's providence and purposes overlap and intertwine with human choices and circumstances. And the fact that it's a woman is very significant because if you look around the ancient Near East and you look at religious or spiritual literature, very rarely do females even play a significant part, let alone get a whole book of a sacred text devoted to them and to their story. This is very, very significant. And we can, we can claim that for ourselves as we go through our lives, that even though circumstances and experiences look as though this is, this is not going to work, or I'm in a mud, I'm, I'm in a rut, or I'm, I'm depressed, God is still at work. And so there's a lot of hope for me in that story that God is not, is not abandoned. That's exactly right. And I think it is something that Ruth offers us. Yeah. Because we all, even when we're in clinical depression, you know, part of us can be aware of the fact that regardless of how we're feeling, even if we know how we're feeling and we can't change that, we can still, in some part of us, be aware that it's isn't the first time and God is able to work in this. Absolutely. Thank you, Holly. Was there another? Yes, sir. I'm looking at it a little bit differently. Uh, Naomi. Must be a powerful influence here because her God, she's living in a country where there was other gods, which uh, Ruth came from. And the decision Ruth made to go with her and follow her gods, that meant she's been a witness all this time for her gods. And Naomi wanted that. Just like the rest of, to me, the whole thing in this story yeah. was her decision to follow that God, not follow Naomi. Naomi was a witness to her during the time that they spent together. Yeah, the, it's a great so, point. So to me, that she was out there proselytizing. <laughs> yes. You know, like we should be doing the same thing. That's right. You know, Absolutely. Bring some people into this place. That's kind of what I got out of, you know. Uh, I put a lot of strength on Naomi, too. Yes, sir. That's great. I just wanted to make another reason. Uh, Ruth is like too good to be true. Really, I, I, I do a good Ruth once when I read the book. And Boaz is just amazing. And, and I've heard them both as a type of Christ, you know, as Jesus and stuff. And I was just thinking when George was talking too that Naomi's the character that I relate to, even though mm -hmm. I, I, I'd love to love like Ruth and I'd love to be as honorable as Boaz, but in reality, in many ways, I'm kind of like Naomi that I say, the Lord bless you and keep you. Then it gets a little worse and then I kind of, ah, you know, the Lord's doing things and then finally don't call me Naomi. You know, it's like that cycle of the Christian mm -hmm. life that we, that we don't want to talk about often is more real, unfortunately, in my life. Yet, yeah. because of God's grace and because of the Christ-like characters, uh, Naomi does end up with blessing. She gets to have these grandbabies, and you know, and in a way, I, I, I see that. I love that about Ruth. That's a that's a great observation. And as I hear you say that, what I think is this: I can relate to Naomi too, um, ups and downs, and. Uh, and we find a lot of psalms that give more vivid expression to her feelings, the book of Lamentations. It's nice to know that even 
when we do flip-flop and vacillate, that that doesn't stop God from working for good in our lives. Sometimes you might think, well, if I, if I said, don't call me Roger anymore, call me Mara. You know, I'm so bitter and angry, and, you know, God hears that. Well, okay, you got rid of me, so I'm going to get rid of you. But actually, that's not what happens at all, and that's very assuring. Yeah. Good point. Go ahead. Rahab. Oh. I don't know. I need to check the genealogies. Yeah. Rahab from Jericho? Yeah. Yeah. 